Greetings to all of our campuses. We are so glad you are here. Hey, just a, a, um, a cool thing to report. Last weekend, our baptism uh, services at our, at our campuses, we had 121 people baptized in our services. So really, really excited about what God is doing in, in our church, and, and we're celebrating that. Hey, we, we are in week four of a five-week teaching series on the Song of Solomon, which is a somewhat steamy collection of love poetry between a man and a woman. And in this book, we are discovering some amazing wisdom about relationships relationships, about dating and marriage and love and, and passion. Now, now I got to be honest, having Mother's Day in the middle of this series has been a challenge because when we were initially laying out this series, we realized that the sex sermon was going to fall right on Mother's Day. Now, I initially thought, so what? I mean, moms know about sex. How'd you get to be a mom, right? <laughs> uh, no, no big deal to talk about sex on Mother's Day. But the more I began working on the actual message, the more uncomfortable I became. I didn't want any moms or families to be surprised by the content this weekend. So we made a decision to switch the last two topics, which means next week we're going to finish this series by talking openly and honestly about sex. Actually, we're going to be talking about making love, which is not synonymous with having sex, and we'll see why next week. So everyone knows what the topic is going to be next week. No surprises. All right, now, now switching these topics actually works really well because today we're going to be talking about commitment. I mean, what an appropriate theme for a Mother's Day weekend. Moms totally get that love is about commitment, but today we're going to talk about the importance of commitment in our most important relationships. One of the fascinating things to me about the Song of Solomon is that while it is filled with very passionate love poetry, it also contains this underlying theme of commitment which is something that is often missing in the relational and sexual dialogue that is happening today in our society. For our culture, love and sex and relationships are often all about feelings, how this person makes me feel. And we make all sorts of relational and sexual decisions based on feelings, which can be a very dangerous thing. To equate love with feelings is to miss out on the nature of true love. But seriously, in order for us to experience genuine love, mature love, we have got to understand and embrace the vital importance of commitment. So what I want us to do is to look at three different commitments that we see in the final chapters of the Song of Solomon. And each one is incredibly relevant to our relationships. Honestly, these commitments are fairly radical, but that's what makes them so powerful. 
No matter what our age or marital status, young, old, single, married, single again, I believe God wants to speak to us about the power of commitment in our relationships. So the first radical commitment I want us to focus on is a commitment to obedience. A commitment to obedience. The struggle for obedience is vividly portrayed in the Song of Solomon with perhaps the most challenging area of all, our sexual desire. I mean, here we have this book in the Bible filled with vivid imagery describing this man and woman's desire for each other, which is a good thing. Sexual desire is a gift from God. But in the midst of this very steamy celebration of passion in the Song of Solomon, there is also a very clear and consistent message that is given. It is repeated three different times in this book at strategic intervals. In chapter 2, verse 7, in the midst of this initial attraction between this man and woman, then in chapter 3, verse 5, as they are growing in emotional intimacy, and then finally, almost as a recap, finally in the last chapter, chapter 8, verse 4. So let's look at that verse. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That, that there is an urgency in this every time it is stated. In the midst of this beautiful poetry about sexual desire and the expression of that desire, there is a clear and consistent message that this amazing experience of sexual intimacy is reserved for an exclusive, committed, permanent love relationship known as marriage. That's the God-given context in which this gift of sexuality finds its ultimate expression. So for this couple, in the first few chapters of this book, before they're married, obedience to God means waiting until marriage to have sex. It means waiting until the time is right. Waiting until marriage to have sex. Now, I know this is such a radical concept for our culture. Perhaps some of you think it is, it's archaic. And I get that. I mean, statistics reveal that 80% of Christian adults between the ages of 19 and 29 are having sex. 80%. So obviously, a lot of Christians aren't buying this. But, but here's the deal. If you want what everyone else has, do what everyone else does. Seriously, if you want what everyone else has, do what everyone else does. But if you want something special, something blessed and anointed by God, do what God says, no matter what those around you are saying. I mean, isn't this the, the foundational message of the entire Bible? Trust God. <laughs> we are supposed to trust Christ with our salvation. We're supposed to trust God with our future and our fears. And the Song of Solomon reminds us that we are also supposed to trust God with our sexuality. In any of those contexts, we know the promise of God, right? Uh, Psalm 37, verse 4, trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can trust him with your sexuality. You can commit yourself to purity, trusting that he is going to bless that commitment. And there's this really cool imagery regarding this in the final chapter of this book. In chapter 8, verse 8, we read, we have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? 
If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. What's happening here? See, her brothers are speaking here about their little sister. They, they, they are wanting to protect her until the time is right. And they use this imagery of a wall and a door. And the wall represents strength of character and, and morality. The door most likely represents loose morals. She is allowing men to enter as they please. So the brothers are concerned about their little sister. They want to protect her integrity. They view her as not being ready for marriage. But notice what she says, verse 10. I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. My vineyard is mine to give. Hey, she, here's what she's saying. She's saying, I'm ready for marriage. And the reason I'm ready is because I'm a wall. I am committed to purity. I am committed to honoring God with my body. I am committed to waiting until the time is right for marriage. Then I will give my vineyard. Then I will give my body to this man who has committed himself to me for life. So here, here's my encouragement to every single person here. Be a wall. Be a wall in the area of sexual purity and in every other area of your life. Commit yourself to being a person of obedience to God. A person who puts God's desires above your own. Who puts long-term obedience over short-term gratification. Now I know some of you, some of you probably feel, feel, you know, I've already blown it. You're thinking to yourself, I've already blown it. So what's the point? The point is about starting now. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God gives us second chances and third and fifth and tenth and more. I mean, that's what the cross is all about. He gives us a new start. So don't believe the lie that don't believe the lie that because you've already blown it, you might as well just keep going on that path. Be a wall. Be a wall. Who cares if everyone else is a door? That's their choice, and they'll reap the consequences of that choice. Dare to be different. Dare to trust God with your sexuality. Dare to commit yourself to obedience. Now, the second radical commitment that can pour life into our most important relationships is a commitment to peacemaking. A commitment to peacemaking. Every relationship experiences conflict. I mean, conflict is normal. It is not a sign that the relationship has fallen apart. We all experience conflict. The key is what we do with that conflict. Now, in, in most conflicts, we typically, we, we typically respond in one of two ways. Avoid or attack. Avoid or attack. And most of us here, most of us are avoiders. We just withdraw. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. We try and act like nothing has happened. When our friend or our spouse says to us, you doing okay? We respond, yeah, I'm fine. When we're not fine. You know, many of you moms here do this without thinking. You are so used to being the family buffer, you know, just trying to keep everything, you know, just keep everything afloat emotionally and everyone afloat emotionally, that it's very easy for you moms to stuff your own feelings, to stuff, you know, your own needs, not letting anyone else know about it. And it's not just moms. Many of us here are our avoiders. We, we, we are pretending to be fine when we're not fine. 
And what happens is that these, these hurts go underground and they start to eat away at our friendships. They start to eat away at our marriage. Avoidance feel like, feels like the easiest and safest path, but it will guarantee it will undermine our relationships. Bitterness and negativity and distance will begin to creep in. Now, the other response is attack rather than avoid. The other response is to attack, verbally attack the person. Or we do it in a more passive aggressive way by talking to our fellow employees about what this person did or, or by talking to our children about what our spouse did. Attacking never works. All it does is cause the other person to get defensive and the conflict just escalates. So neither avoiding nor attacking work. But there is another option. There is another response. And we see it in the Song of Solomon. For the first three chapters, this couple is in love. I mean, everything the other one does is so wonderful and so cute. I mean, they can't wait to get married and express their sexual desire for each other. But soon after the honeymoon in chapter 4, soon after the honeymoon in chapter, in fact, almost immediately after the honeymoon in chapter 4, they get into a little spat. A conflict occurs. Chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. See, apparently the husband has come home late at night, and he wants to connect with his spouse, with his wife. It could be sexual in nature, not surprisingly, but not necessarily, right? The knocking could be poetic imagery, or it could be literal. But, so he is knocking and expressing his desire for her, but she has already gone to bed. Verse 3, look at her response. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? I mean, her response is, is, is initial response is sort of selfish. Hey, I'm already in bed. I don't want to get up and open the door. I don't want to have to put my robe on again and get my feet all dirty. I mean, this, this is the first time we have seen anything like this in this entire book where she basically resists his advances. But this is life, right? This is life. This is how relationships work. Sometimes we don't want to help around the house. We don't want to do the dishes. We don't want to give the kids a bath or, 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 or pick up the carpool one more time. We, we don't want to serve our spouse. We want to veg. We want to watch TV. We want to veg, right? We want to do what we want to do. And that causes conflict, Relationships, including marriage, work best when both parties have an attitude of selfless love. But that doesn't always happen. Now, what I want us to notice here is how she responds. Initially, she basically says, I don't want to open the door. I don't want to hang out. I'm tired. I'm ready to go to sleep. Right? So he leaves. Now, instead of just going to sleep... She feels some remorse. She feels some remorse about that interaction. And so she goes out to look for him. She pursues him. She recognizes her own self-centeredness and decides to go find him. And in her response, we see a third option in the midst of conflict. Rather than avoiding or attacking, we can choose to approach the person. To be real with them about our feelings. To dialogue about the situation. 
No, it, it is not easy to do this, but it's good. <laughs> it is not easy, but it's good. It's honoring to God. In fact, remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are committed to making peace, who are committed to having hard conversations, who are committed to speaking the truth in love and to listening to the other person's perspective without getting defensive. I mean, that, that's huge. It's not just the approaching part, it's the listening part. So often, our instinctive reaction when someone approaches us about a hurt or a conflict is to get defensive, right? To get angry. And then lines get drawn in the sand and feelings get hurt. The, 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 you know, the, the, the conversation just kind of escalates in intensity. So the key here, the key is to be humble enough to listen and loving enough to dialogue and try to, find, try to find a solution. That there is blessing that comes in all of our relationships when we are willing to do the hard work of conflict resolution. Now this gets really difficult in a marriage or in another relationship where one party refuses to go there. When one party refuses to dialogue. Man, that is so hard. And all I can say is pray earnestly for their heart to be softened. Continue to gently try and bring up the conversations. If the conflict is serious enough, get help. I mean, we have marriage mentors we can connect you with. We have counselors we can recommend. Don't hesitate to get some outside help for a conflict that keeps surfacing and undermining your relationship. The bottom line is, we, is that we can't control how someone responds to us. We can't control that, but we can make a renewed commitment before God to be peacemakers. We can control our response. We can make a, renew our commitment to be peacemakers. Rather than attacking or avoiding, we can commit ourselves to pursue peace in our relationships which is a great segue into the third radical commitment that can pour life into our relationships. And that is a commitment to persevere. A commitment to persevere. There is this absolutely beautiful and powerful section in the last chapter of the Song of Solomon. We have seen this couple go through the stages of attraction. We talked about that early on in the series. And then growing intimacy. They get married at the end of chapter 3. They enjoy their honeymoon in chapter 4. They experience conflict in chapter 5. And then a growing relationship in chapters 6 and 7. Now look at chapter 8 verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? This word leaning means to support or to take the elbow of someone. So here is this woman taking the elbow of her husband, coming out of the wilderness. Now this term wilderness in the Bible, it's frequently used in the Bible, and it often refers to a season of challenge or to a season of maturing. I mean, the Israelites in the wilderness, right? Jesus in the wilderness, when he's fasting in the wilderness. And so what we see in this verse is most likely an aging woman who is holding on to the arm of her, of her aging husband. For years they have been together. For years they have loved each other. And notice what she says, verse six. Place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm. For love 
is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. This is such a beautiful description of persevering love. So so let's unpack it here. She says initially, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. The idea of a seal was a tangible symbol of ownership, of possession. Something that had a seal on it symbolized ownership. This woman was expressing her sense of belonging to her husband. That she is, is his permanently. She knows that she is loved permanently. She knows she belongs to him. That he is protecting her. And he won't let her slip and fall. Even in life's wilderness. She knows that. It's like a seal. The idea of permanence then carries into the next phrase. Where she says that love is as strong as death. Jealousy as unyielding as the grave. The the language is describing the power and the permanence of love, of this love. It is stronger than death itself. The word jealousy used here reminds us that jealousy is not always a negative thing. I mean, scripture talks about God being a jealous God. What does that mean? It means he is offended when his people The objects of his love, he is offended when his people run after other loves and and pursue other gods. He is jealous of their affection. That's a good thing. I am jealous of Raylene's affection, and she is jealous of mine. If she starts hanging out with another guy, I'm going to be jealous, and that's a good thing. It's not that I don't trust her. It's not an insecure, inappropriate jealousy that that springs from my own issues. No, it's that she's mine. And guys, I'm not sharing. I'm not sharing. (laughs) See, what's being described here in in this text is a love relationship that is absolutely committed to each other exclusively. That's what marriage is. A permanent, exclusive commitment to this other person. And that commitment is stronger than death itself. Verse 6, it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. I mean, that's persevering love. It endures through difficulty, through hardship, through rivers of pain. It keeps loving even when it's hard. Even when it doesn't feel good, it perseveres to the end, stronger than death itself. Now, a lot of people today, a lot of people today have have a mistaken idea of marriage, about marriage. I mean, we we all know that marriage is about commitment. I mean, no, no one will argue with that. But what kind of commitment are we talking about? See, most people today, many people today view marriage as a contract, it's a contract, right? When, and when two people enter into a contract, they both agree to abide by the terms of the contract. And if one of them doesn't abide by the contract, the contract becomes null and void. They can just walk away from the, from the relationship. That's the way a lot of people view marriage, as a contract. But that's not how the Bible views marriage. From a biblical perspective, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant, And there is a huge difference. See, God, think about this. God uses marriage to describe his relationship with us. 
And it is clear that this relationship is based not on a contract, it's based on a covenant. See, a covenant is a relationship that's established on the basis of an unconditional commitment to love. It's unconditional. It, it, the Old Testament word for this is hesed. It is God's unfailing love for us. Even when we don't hold up our end of the bargain or our end of the contract, right? Even though we don't hold our end of the bargain, he loves us. He is still committed to us. It is unconditional. It is permanent. And that's the way God views marriage. It is unconditional. It is permanent. It's a covenant. Now, I realize there are many divorced people here, and I am not intending, I am not intending at all to pile on guilt and shame. I mean, I realize that divorce is excruciatingly painful, which is why God says he hates divorce. He doesn't say he hates divorced people. He hates divorce. He hates the fact that divorce causes so much pain and devastation. I understand that divorce happens. And I understand that there are, there are certain biblical grounds that allow a divorce. But having said all of that, having said that, I do not believe that God wants us to minimize his vision for marriage just because of the reality of divorce. What Song of Solomon and the rest of Scripture give us is a glorious vision of marriage as covenant, a permanent, committed, a permanent, committed love relationship to this person, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> We don't need to apologize for that vision. We can celebrate it. We can strive to attain to that. Even if we've blown it in, in, in previous relationships, we can still make this our standard for the future. A commitment to persevere. This is the mark. This is a mark of genuine love. I mean, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a, a scripture that is often read at weddings, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. He uses the word always four times in that one verse. Clearly, love involves a commitment to persevere. In the, in the novel Captain Corelli's Mandolin, a father is talking with his daughter and he describes this kind of love to, to his daughter. This is what he says. Love is not breathlessness. It's not excitement. It's not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. It's not the desire to mate every second of the day. It, it's not lying awake at night imagining that he's kissing every cranny of your body. No, don't, don't blush. I'm telling you some truths. Just being in love, any fool can do. Real love is what's left over when being in love has burned away. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew together underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. That's powerful. Any fool can be in love. 
Real love takes work and effort. It doesn't always feel good. It's not the stuff of love songs and romance and flowers. It's the hard work of loving when it's not easy to do so. When your wife experiences depression for a long season, when your husband starts having anxiety attacks or loses his job, when you find out that your newborn has birth defects and you are thrust into a season where loving is not warm fuzzies, it's hard. It would be so much easier to just bail or withdraw. But God calls you. He invites you and me to keep on loving. To keep loving. I remember being at the bedside of a woman who was dying of cancer. And I watched as her husband of many, many years took her hand and he held it. And he thanked her for loving him and for being so faithful. He thanked her for being his best friend for these 40 plus years. He, he praised her for being such a great mom and, and wife and, and, he, and he, he praised her for her, her love for God. It was a holy moment. It was a holy moment, a vivid picture of what the Song of Solomon is describing. A love that is stronger than the grave. I mean, let me just ask you married couples. You married couples here. Do you want that? Do you want that? No matter how hard things are in your marriage right now, at the end of your life, wouldn't you like to, wouldn't you like to say, we did it. We endured. Even when it was hard, even when, it felt, even when we felt like quitting, we didn't. We got help when we needed it. We prayed our way through. We stayed strong when we felt weak. You were worth it. We were worth it. Husbands, wives, imagine, imagine looking into the eye of the person to whom you said I do. And as you take your final breath saying, I did. I did. In light of love and in light of eternity, what will that be worth to be able to say that at that moment? I did. So how do we do that in our marriages and our friendships? How do we keep loving when it's really hard to do so? How do we live out this commitment to obedience, to peacemaking and, and to perseverance? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the, the, the night before his crucifixion, he took a cup of wine as part of the Passover meal. He handed it to his disciples and he said to them, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Notice, notice he didn't say, this is my blood of the contract. You keep your end of the deal, I'll keep mine, and as long as that happens, we'll have a relationship. You know, that's not what he said. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus gave his life for us, paying the price to establish a permanent love relationship, a relationship that is not dependent upon what we do, but is completely dependent upon his work on the cross. I mean, think of that. 
When we place our trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, his love is ours permanently. Nothing we can do can separate us from that love. Now, some people, especially Christians, some Christians hear this and they get nervous. They say, well, if if that were true, I mean, if that were true, I could just do whatever I wanted and God would keep loving me. You're right. You could do, you could do whatever you want. You could do just whatever you wanted. But, but here's the deal. When you really understand, when you really understand what it cost Jesus to love you and to establish this permanent covenant, you want to love him back. You want to. You want his love and his life to flow through you. You see, it it is that life and that love that enable us to love, that enable us to love when it's hard to do so. When, When everything within us wants to give in or give up. Jesus' covenant love for you is that powerful. It always perseveres. It always perseveres. Open your heart afresh to this love. Let him fill you and give you the strength you need to obey. The strength you need to be a peacemaker. The strength you need to persevere until your final breath. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, you have been speaking to us and giving us an amazing picture of what love looks like. Thank you. Thank you for this love. And God, I want to pray for all of us here in our relationships, especially those who are married in terms of the things we were just talking about, persevering love, But I pray for your grace upon every marriage here. Those that are going through wildernesses, those that are going through difficulties, and some folks here are just thinking of giving up or or whatever. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fill us with a commitment to persevere, even when it's hard. So I pray protection around marriages here. I pray blessing and a commitment to persevere. I pray for that, Lord. And for each married person in your heart, perhaps the Holy Spirit is inviting you, urging you just to renew that commitment to your marriage. When all the fluffy stuff wears off and all the warm fuzzies fade away, are you committed to this person? So I pray for that. Lord, I want to pray for the, the, um, the, the, the singles here and the, and the issue of commitment to obedience. Lord, I pray, especially in the area of sexual purity, I pray that singles here would be a wall, a wall of integrity. And they would trust you with their sexuality. They would be willing to wait to not just do what everyone else is doing and get the results everyone else is getting. They would be willing to wait and to experience your anointing and blessing in a, in a, in a unique way in their lives because of their obedience to you. I pray that for all of us, obedience in our lives to you, to trust you. 
And Father, I want to pray as well for, for the area of peacemaking, for any, all of us here in the midst of our relationships. If we're in a relationship where there's conflict, help us be people who approach, who are willing to dialogue and speak the truth in love. And if we're on the receiving end of that, help us not get defensive, but to really listen and to work towards a solution. God, we want to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We want that. And so I pray for that, for every relationship here. And God, we acknowledge, we acknowledge that these things are only possible through you. We can't do this in our own power. We can't persevere in our own power and, and, and obey in our own power and be peacemakers in our own power. We need you. We thank you for the covenant you have established with us through the shedding of your blood on the cross. We open our hearts afresh to that love, that amazing love. Now, I want to take a moment. You can just keep your head bowed, but I want to take a moment. There may be some of you here, and what you need right now is to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus. You need to enter into this covenant that Jesus describes. Because some of you here have thought for a long time, you have thought having a relationship with God is a contract, basically. You have thought it's about your effort. As long as you go to church, as long as you're a good person and try to be nice to your neighbors and all these things, that that's what establishes a relationship with God. That's not what establishes it. It is the blood of Jesus alone that establishes a relationship with God. We're sinners. God's holy. We need forgiveness in order to enter into this love relationship. And Jesus offers that to you. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you his life. And, and he wants to transform you to enable you to love like he loves. So if you have never entered into this relationship with God as a covenant, you need to. And I want to encourage you and invite you to. But I want to, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer right now. And you can pray this in the silence of your heart where you can enter into this relationship. Just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy and I'm not. I'm a sinner. And I realize there is nothing I can do to earn my way to you. No matter, no matter how many good things I do, I'm still separated from you. The contract is not working. I need a covenant based on your work. And I thank you that you love me so much. You sent your son Jesus to earth to die on a cross in my place. So Jesus, I place my trust in you. I bring to you my whole self, my faults and my failures and my fears and my sins. I place them all on you. And I receive your forgiveness and life. Forgive my sin through the power of your blood. Cleanse me. Make me a new person. Change me from the inside out through the power of your spirit. So Lord, I want to pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. I pray they would grow in their relationship with you. They would love you with all their heart. They would grow in their relationship, their intimacy with you. And I pray that for all of us, that we would live in the reality of this covenant Man, in our love relationships, when we're struggling to persevere and to obey and, and to be peacemakers, we would rely on your love poured out for us. We, want, we would want to obey you. We would want to persevere because of your love for us. So thank you for that. 
we celebrate that. We love you, God. We love you, Lord. Well, right now, we're going to enter into a time of worship. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And there's a special opportunity here to respond through partaking of the Lord's Supper. We're going to do it a little differently today. Rather than passing trays, we have stations set up all around the room. And we invite you at any point during the, 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 the three songs we're seeing, any point during the worship response, we invite you to partake. You can go to a table, just break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice and partake right there. Then you can go back to your seat. So there's plenty of time to, to partake in this. And we want this just to be a meaningful time to experience the Lord's Supper, perhaps with your spouse, with your family, if you want to do it together, if you want to do it individually. There's, there's freedom here. But we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together that way today. So why don't we stand as the worship team leads us in the Lord's Supper?